we hadn't really known where we were going yet or where the battalion was going to get broken up. And we rotated our squads of, I think they were rolling with two patrols a day each. So up to six patrols in a 24 hour period. We knew we were being tracked right at that moment. There was a big uh, open, they ambushed, they hit us again with enemy fire hit us and it hit the British brigade commander. And I think that if veterans are more open to talking about what it is they went through, you'll never know what you can learn from somebody else and what you can relate to, yes. to them about. And I feel, you know, the misconception of no one's going to understand is, is really just, you know, that it's a misconception on both ends. The views and opinions in this podcast do not represent the Department of Defense, Department of the Navy, or United States Marine Corps. After their deployment in 2008, some called them the Forgotten Battalion. But the Marines and sailors of the United States Marine Corps' 2nd Battalion, 7th Marine Regiment, reject the way the Forgotten Battalion moniker encourages that narrative of broken veterans. Instead, these warriors simply want to be remembered for the mission they accomplished and for the honor with which they have served their country and their corps. The majority of 2-7 veterans continue to reflect on their experiences while living their lives and pressing forward. These are their personal stories of resilience with insight to healthy coping and living with hope. Welcome to the Warriors Roundtable. Today on the Roundtable, we talk to former 2-7 Staff Sergeant Marcus Hernandez. Marcus, thanks for letting me interview you today. It's good to sit down and chat with you and see you again. Thank you, sir. To start off, uh, if you would, just talk a little bit about what you did with 2nd Battalion, 7th Marines. Uh, thanks for having me, sir. Uh, so I was a platoon sergeant with Fox Company, 2nd Platoon. Uh, so we had I got to Fox Company in... Uh, September of 2007, um, and I had just returned from a deployment to Afghanistan where I did nine-month deployment uh, with um, Major Matt O'Donnell, was my basically my partner or my teammate there in Afghanistan that I spent some time, and he was the Echo Company CEO, ended up being the Echo Company CEO. Um, in we trained. Uh, I think it was a quick workup um, to where we had, I remember having Christmas leave and then we did our, we started the workup and then we were, there was no pre-deployment leave for us. And we found ourselves in Afghanistan, I think a week after we finished Mojave Viper uh, is what they were still calling it. And we spent about a month in Kandahar uh, between Kandahar and uh, Camp Leatherneck at the time. And we were training, getting ready to go to our perspective areas. We hadn't really known where we were going yet or where the battalion was going to get broken up. And um, once it did, once we everybody figured out whose mission or how the mission was broken up, my platoon was designated to go to Musakela. Uh, and be with the British um, units there. So we worked alongside with the Scots, uh, along with the Gurkha Battalion, um, 
as well, but majority of everything we did there, we led all everything that we did there. We were usually up front as far as what uh, we were doing mission wise. So we were put in Mustakela. There was no living quarters for us. So we put um, tents up for the Marines uh, as well as we had what was called the White House, uh, which was another area of the, uh, of the Musakela district and where we were staying. And we put some Marines on guard in there, and that's where kind of where our headquarters was between there and another building. Um, from there, we were given the mission to patrol uh, daily, and then which moved into where we rotated squads where I had three squads and we rotated our squads of, I think they were rolling with two patrols a day each. So up to six patrols in a 24 hour period. How um, long were those patrols typically? Um, anywhere from two to four hours. Usually um, nothing really happened at the beginning. Uh, pretty quiet, but we knew we were being tracked uh, of what was going on. And there was always chatter on the radios that we were out. Um, and then we set up a, what was called a vehicle checkpoint, and we called it South Park, which was on the south end of town where we left a squad of Marines um, there for a week, uh, where they were, it was basically a checkpoint to make sure no one was coming in and out of the town. We didn't have anybody outside of the actual uh, compound, but they all stayed inside there, uh, which we had uh, planned and rehearsed uh, to reinforce them if needed. Uh, and luckily we never did. Mm. Uh, we, cause it was about probably about a mile, less than a mile away, but under that mile mark, but it would have easily could have, it could have restricted our movement getting there to reinforcement, but sure. and luckily we never had to deal with that. Mm. Um, so while we were in, uh, Musikela, we were tasked with a couple of different missions, uh, one mission being uh, to hold a blocking position uh, for the British units uh, to the north of where we were in Musakela uh, in a place called uh, Yadam Chai, I believe it was. Um, and when we were there, uh, we got ambushed, pretty uh, pretty heavy ambush that they, that, uh, they ambushed our vehicles. Uh, we didn't have any Marines wounded. Uh, but we had some Marines pinned down in some pretty intense firefights. Firefight lasted between I, anywhere between four and six hours mm. um, from beginning to end. Uh, we had Marines dismounted uh, as well as trying to maneuver and help the other Marines that were pinned down uh, get them out of that area. And finally, we were able to get everybody back and back to the vehicles. Once we got to the vehicles, the, the British... Uh, command and control basically their headquarters showed up and wanted us to clear the compounds that were to the north of our position but when uh, my platoon commander Lieutenant Conway at the time um, came to me and asked what what should we do are we even capable of doing that uh, my reaction was there's no we were not able to effectively uh, clear these compounds because we didn't have the whole platoon with us on patrol. We were, I think we only had about two squads worth of Marines and I don't even believe it was that many uh, because we had 
the drivers had to stay with the vehicles and the gunners had to stay in the turrets. So you only had two, two dismounts per vehicle. And we only had about, I want to say five to six vehicles with us. So we okay. may have had a squad of Marines to do it. And so on his way back to go tell, um, you know, to let the British commander know that, Hey, we, we would not be able to do it effectively. Um, that's like right at that moment, there was a big uh, open, they ambushed, they hit us again with enemy fire, hit us, and it hit the British brigade commander. Um, and we had a Marine walk, happened to be walking by, back to his vehicle, and he and another corpsman, uh, he was our IDC uh, Chief Morales at the time, or HM1 Morales at the time, but now I believe it's Senior Chief Morales, um, happened to be right there as well pulled him to cover um, the British commander that got hit uh, was hit in the, in the, in the femoral uh, leg and right leg, upper leg wound, which it hit his uh, broke his femur and cut his femoral artery. Uh, so we thought we were losing them. And luckily we had chief Morales with us, uh, our HM1 Morales at the time. Mm-hmm. He was able to, uh, make a traction splint and you know we had three or four tourniquets on his leg and we were able to stop the bleeding and get him out of there uh, mm-hmm. once that happened the uh, the mission really slowed down and we basically got back in our vehicles and went back uh, about what time frame is this it's in 2008 about how far into the deployment roughly this what was within the first uh three weeks i want to say probably mm-hmm. the first month um, if I'm not mistaken, it was, it was really quick into the deployment. Sure. Um, and then we kind of got tasked with doing some more A and P, uh, mission work, trying to work with them, going out, taking, trying to get them to go out on patrol with us within the city limits. Uh, mm-hmm. a lot of our patrols were trying to figure out who was good, who was bad, uh, in the area. Now, obviously uh, your Marines listening to this know what the A and P is. Yes, uh, but Afghan if there's others, National Police. Afghan National Police. And if you refer to ANA, you're talking Afghan, Afghan National, National Army. Army. Um, and there was always a difference between them both. A lot of the Afghan National Army were not locals. Uh, mm-hmm. They are from different parts of the country. So they didn't get along with the Afghan National Police because the ANP was localized there with, with it, from Musa Kela. Mm, okay. um, and so probably I want to say it's around June... I think it's June 15th or June between that area. I'd have to look it up in my books. Um, that's when we were tasked with another mission to go south to a place called, uh, I don't recall. It's either cats or I may have them mixed up. Um, and that's where we were tasked to go secure another area um, for a, for EOD to come in for, uh, to disarm a couple of Mark 80, three bombs that were dropped that didn't go off and they were supposed to, they didn't want them to fall into Taliban hands or and, and you know, different forces. And so as we were rolling in there with our vehicles, again, we were didn't have wasn't a full on platoon, but about a squad and a half worth of Marines that went, um, our first vehicle, our first vehicle was always an MRAP, uh, with the mine roller got stuck in the, um, in the wadi. Uh, there and once he got stuck we had rehearsed uh, dismounts and 
as we were rolling in, we just started getting mortared RPGs uh, from both sides of, of the wadi itself. Uh, our, my vehicle was hit. The other vehicles were hit as well. But then they, once they found that dismounted, the dismounts were getting out that stuck vehicle. It's almost like they knew that was happening. And I want, I, they walked, I don't know if they walked mortars or they just got lucky. Okay. Um, but I was about a hundred meters behind and I was able to see clear as day, a mortar round land between, it was then Corporal Casper, Corporal uh, Posner, Lance Corporal Stats landed right in between them as they were talking. They had just tried to attempted one way to tow the vehicle out of, out from being stuck. And as they were re talking again, um, that's when the mortar round hit and clear as day, I can still see it. It's almost like it was slow motion. Um, the mortar round hit the explosion went and all three Marines were on the ground face down, uh, you know, expecting the worst, Myself, uh, then Sergeant Cody Boudwin uh, dismounted, or he was already dismounted, if I'm not mistaken. Um, dismounted our vehicle with all the corpsmen, and we tried to get these Marines into a safe area, um, loaded in vehicles out of the kill zone, because we were really in an ambush. We were in the kill zone of that ambush. Mm -hmm. um, once we were able to get them out, uh, into vehicles. They ended up being in my vehicle and another vehicle. Uh, I think Casp I think I had Casper in my vehicle. He was the worst of the three. Uh, Posner was in the other vehicle as well as stats. Stats end up waking up and kind of walking wounded uh, more or less. From there, we got him on a bird and flew him out uh, later on or later within the hour or within probably within 35, 40 minutes, we had him on a, on a bird out of there, uh, not too far off. And then we had to, I had left, I had, I took the Marines out to that, uh, LZ to get him out of there while Lieutenant Conway and then Lieutenant Sochi, I think Lieutenant Sochi was there getting everybody else, uh, with Sergeant Boudwin getting everybody else loaded back in the vehicles, getting them out of the kill zone. And then, uh, we had air on station at that time, and it almost like at that point, we stopped receiving enemy fire. We were able to get out of that, get out of that area. Uh, but from then on, uh, just small firefights. Um, off and on, we had one other wounded Marine who was a combat replacement. He was shot in the shoulder on a foot patrol. Uh, and then we've had a lot, we had a few A&A soldiers get hit as well while they were out on patrol with us. So second mm -hmm. platoon was kind of on its own. We didn't have the, the kinetic environment as we'll say like now is that in the rest of the company. Um, a lot of our stuff was we, our Marines were patrolling three to five times a day when we were rotating between different, between guard on Musakela, uh, rotating out of South park and then rotating on patrol. And then we also did I want to say we had over a hundred convoys to and from another, what was called Bob Edinburgh, which was run by the British. And that's where all our resupply would come into. Um, so we were, we had well over a hundred uh, patrols or mounted patrols there 
uh, to either get stuff. Uh, that's where all our mail came in that I think three to five times that we got mail while we were there. Uh, but it almost, we were kind of like, uh, I guess I didn't really feel it. till talking to a few people afterwards, we were like the bastard children, uh, on our own. And I enjoyed that more or less. Uh, it was like a badge of honor for you guys. Yeah. It was away from the flagpole. Um, but it was, it was, we were, it was a lot of my own, uh, learning a lot of stuff on my own. And it was, I was a brand new staff sergeant. So I really had to learn really quick. I didn't have Mm -hmm. the mentor as the other new staff sergeants did. They had, you know, the company gunning, it was me and me only. Um, so I played the role of platoon sergeant as well as, uh, you know, the company first sergeant. So I was the senior one um, there, uh, through that deployment. Um, so yeah, that's, that was pretty much the wrap of our deployment as far as second platoon. And I know the other guys um, in Fox Company have a different perspective on on their, uh, where they were and what they did. Right. Um, you know, we received a lot of uh, indirect fire living in tents. That was probably the scariest moments for everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, we hit two or three IEDs, I think, with our vehicles. Uh, nothing catastrophic, luckily. Um, just blown tires where we weren't, we were able to tow them out and get them back to the FOB. Uh, and that was pretty much our, our deployment. I think the scariest, like I said, was the IDF. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the... The indirect fire. The indirect fire and probably the the IED threat. That was probably, with all the mounted patrols we did, uh, that was a big one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would, the only, I think the significant thing, we had a, a reporter go with us. I just looked it up not too long ago. A British reporter go with us that had to get medevac, but she basically uh, had a heat, heat stroke uh, out on patrol, which wasn't a very far patrol for any of us. We were used to it. And it was in the middle of summer, um, but we we had to clear a route for her with no mine detectors or no uh, vehicle leading the front. It was everybody on foot patrol with her in the back of the vehicle, back of the Humvee, um, getting taken care of as far as medically. Um, but she could have cost the lives of Marines mm-hmm. uh, in that aspect for her failure to prepare herself for a patrol there in that environment. Um, Has that changed your perspective at all on the, on the value versus the risk of having embedded reporters? I would think that, or for me, it doesn't change because I've had reporters with us that, that want to be that they're, they're in shape and they're ready for it mentally and sure. physically, well, more or less physically. I think mentally they, they're, they're there because they're, they're already mentally fit for it because they've seen so much for the most part, but physically is probably the bigger piece. And we didn't take another reporter with us the rest of the appointment, mm-hmm. uh, or we tried to get away from that after that. Um, cause that was really bad. It was bad for her, but bad for, for our guys that sure. could have cost their lives. Um, mm. trying to take care of her. And like I said, it wasn't a, a far patrol. Um, I recognize some of the symptoms that she was, or some of the signs and symptoms that she was given out early on. Mm-hmm. And I had second, I 
didn't go with my intuition by turning the patrol back um, because talking to her and having a, the medical officer that was with us at the time uh, and the British side that was with us at the time um, talked to her. She just kept saying she was fine. And uh, I had went with what their advice was. She's good. We're only going up the road. Uh, she'll be okay. By the time we made it up the road, it was not good. Um, yeah. And we, she wasn't even conscious anymore. So it was, it was pretty bad. And like mm. I said, if it, we got lucky that day. You're out there uh, somewhat isolated to use your words, uh, feeling isolated, or at least your Marines are. Somebody once told me something that in the absence of information, people tend to assume the worst. Maybe that was operative there. I don't know where some of your younger Marines are, you know, thinking that they've sort of been cast off the, as you said, the bastard children. But there you are as sort of an acting gunny, an acting first sergeant, uh, and you've got to try to provide leadership. You've got to try to give them a continued sense of of mission and connectedness to not just mission, but the you know the what the rest of the battalion is doing. At the same time, you're going through all of your own challenges. You're missing your family. You're going through the same uh, stress of combat that they are. What's that like to try to be a leader in that situation and kind of really lock your own stuff down and try to make sure that, that you're shaping a message that encourages and motivates your Marines when they're feeling that way? I would say uh, for me, I know that it was almost like you put on an act uh, okay. to show um, that it's almost like you're faking uh the we'll call it faking just your personality uh and all i could do was keep myself busy from worrying about my own issues um and i think i had a moment one time when i was deployed and that was right after the guys got hit mm -hmm. uh that i actually for the first time thought of myself in a way um uh, but then it quickly went to oh quit feeling sorry for yourself Mm -hmm. got other guys out there you know um and i think it more or less happened when i was inventorying all their gear mm. uh, and i just had to step away and get away from everybody to have my moment i guess sure uh but i don't remember i remember just trying to keep it as positive as possible yeah uh with everybody and um you know trying to give them feed them as much information as we could um and there was not usually the information that I gave them what was going on around the battalion. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes that would leak out from the radio watch. Hey, I heard this on the radio uh, last night on radio watch. And, you know, there was always a watch officer in there as well. So we would always try to, you know, prevent, you know, Lance Corporal so-and-so going telling, you know, everybody else before we knew the details because they just heard small things. Uh, of what would actually happen within the battalion. Sure. I think the, the not knowing caused a lot of uncertainty. They didn't know what was going on around them. Um, and I think, you know, then not hearing from or not seeing, you know, the company commander or the battalion commander so often, like we got so used to before, mm. you know, back in garrison or even at other, a lot of the senior guys that went to Iraq, 
you know, they had seen their company commander or they, you know, they passed information here. They're getting information from the same guy for the last eight months and it's either good or it's bad. Uh, And there was no in between it's, you know, uh, so we just tried to let them know as much information as we could. Yeah. uh, Accurate information really and prevent the rumors uh, of anything. Mm -hmm. So that's where I thought I, and I went in, Knowing what I know now, I wish I had opened up more maybe to what I was going through to them and maybe it would allow them to open up about what they were going through. But when you're in the heat of the moment um, and what we were for seven months, it's hard to really reflect. And I will never forget uh, right after the guys got hit, um, I was told to get the Marines ready for patrol again to prevent them from thinking about what just happened. Mm. And I was hesitant of that because I didn't want a, um, a, uh, out for retribution or do something out of what happened. Uh, and that's what was going on in my head. But, and I remember disagreeing with the decision and going on patrol too, because I felt if they had to do it, I had to do it too. Right. Um, and so that's where I kind of, I wish I had opened up more, but instead I just tucked everything away. What was combat in particularly like for you? Everybody describes it a little differently. What was it like for you? I would say it's, for me, it's, there's a couple, I have three or four combat tours. Um, it, no, neither one, of, none of them have been the same. Mm-hmm. It's always affected me in a different way. Um, that one in particular, I would say majority of my job at the time was putting fires out, uh, trying to do deal with all the deal with the 90 Marines I had. Um, and it was, that's what kept me busy. Um, uh, but a lot of it was, I don't, what I would hear from the younger Marines, it's, you know, we just sit around, you know, if we're not, doing anything we're not in firefights every day it's 99 percent boredom and then you know that one percent of terror or mm-hmm. fright or fight or flight feeling uh you know for seven months or mm-hmm. one moment you have that fight or flight kick in where everything slows down um and i can remember you know specific details of every firefight that i've ever been in uh, and some deals, and that's, I'll be talking about it with other individuals, and they don't even remember. They remember their part, and I don't even remember where they were. Uh, and so I think, you know, your tunnel vision goes in uh, once that fight or flight kicks in, and you see things that are directly in front of you. Uh, and it's a heightened state that it's almost like a, looking at it now, it's like an adrenaline rush that you wish you always want to have. And that's what I find now. Mm -hmm. It's it's an adrenaline rush that I don't have anymore. What can I do when I need that adrenaline rush? Um, That sounds like a a very normal, common sort of theme as I talk to a lot of uh, Marines or soldiers that have been in, in combat. What's it like now after combat for you? So, um, I would say for me, it was just never thinking about it. I hit everything 
Uh, I let it affect me in that aspect. Uh, but you can only stuff so much before you, it's like a teapot. Mm-hmm. You, can only, you know, that steam's got to go off somewhere. And I think how I would purge that steam every now and then I would cause a, you know, maybe an argument with my wife or cause some, have some type of, you know, where I would have some type of adrenaline rush, get mm-hmm. mad over nothing. Um, but I have found now that it's, um, it does me no good. Uh, it, actually it's a you know cause and effect type thing it's more negative than it is positive and it really keeps me from growing anything anywhere it doesn't you know mentally emotionally you know just keeps you in a negative state of mind uh basically the whole time if you why i was doing that and i think um what i have found to do is you know i've learned this recently is I've been starting to write things down uh, when I started getting that way. Um, exercise is a big one, uh, has been really beneficial, but even more so just getting talking about it um, with other people, other veterans, mm-hmm. or not so afraid to talk. I think in a long time, for a long time, I've never talked about it with my wife at all. I think until a couple years ago when I was started dealing with my own stuff. Um, did she ever hear about anything that I'd ever done? Mm. Uh, and why do you think that was for you? There's always, I believe there is a misconception of they don't understand. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not, and I think it goes on both ends. I think it's that we, as a veteran, we think a spouse or somebody that doesn't know, doesn't understand. Right. Um, and I think it goes on the other side. Um, Oh, they're not going to talk to me because they think I don't understand. It goes both ways. It's two way street. And I think it almost ends there hmm. um, in that aspect. But I think that if people, t- if veterans talk about it more often, you'll find individuals that relate to you in, in maybe in a different part of their life that you never knew about them. Yeah. Uh, and specifically I have a friend that I grew up with, um, and we went to a comedy show one night and we were just talking and he told me, you know, something that he's dealt with with a kid as a kid. And it was, you know, nothing more than he was supposed to go with the family for a weekend trip, not his family, but a friend, his old neighbor. Um, but for whatever reason that Friday, he didn't want to go and he hid his parents. And well, on his way, I think that weekend that son and father were killed in a crash. He said that bothers him to this day that he should have went that day, but he didn't go because for whatever reason he was scared and didn't want to leave his parents and something he never did. And something I would never talked about, you know, Mm -hmm. he told me I've never talked about it with anybody. I go, well, here, uh, you know, I'm not trying to one up you at all, but I I know where you're coming from. I understand where you're coming from. And I appreciated him sharing something that he didn't share in I actually had a lot of gra- a lot of gratitude that he would open up and talk about something that he hadn't talked about in years. Mm, um, yeah, sort of a gift. And I think that if veterans are more open to talking about what it is they went through, you'll never know what you can learn from somebody else and what you can relate to, yeah. to them about. And I feel, you know, the misconception of no one's going to understand is is really just, you know, that. It's a misconception on both ends. 